Well, today is the day we choose to celebrate and honor our mothers, which is certainly a biblical thing to do. Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, but then this, honor to whom honor. And it's certainly right for us to render honor unto our mothers, and in doing so, give God thanks for our moms, give God thanks for the design of the family, and give God thanks particularly for Christian moms. So this would be a really different world, and not a better world, if we didn't have mothers, right? I mean, wasn't it your mother that stopped you from leaving the house? How often did your mother say, you're not going out like that. Turn around and get something else on. Yeah. This would not be a better world without moms. And um, how do I know that, by the way? Well, I had a mother. <laughs> and we know it because from the very beginning of time, as we know time, God's design has always included moms. So as we come to this Mother's Day today in 2022, we have to recognize that sometimes there are issues that take place in the political arena, which are in fact issues that are not truly political at all. And as I've said before, most of you know that in my preaching ministry, I do my best to refrain from comments on those issues that may be qualified as being strictly or mostly political, and that is no small task for me at times. However, we have seen once again in this past week that there are those times when issues in politics transcend the political and even the judicial arenas and must therefore be addressed within the church, that it may be properly considered through the lens of the Scripture. And so with all that we've seen this week, I want to remind you that the Bible tells us that all life is precious, but particularly the life of the unborn, the most vulnerable among us. With the issue of abortion as being played out in the political and the judicial arenas, the reality is that this is actually a moral issue, and it's a moral issue which is clearly addressed by the Word of God. And it's a moral issue which indeed must be contended for through the faithful ministry of the church. And so when it comes to abortion, we hear, the, we hear what the politicians say. We hear what the angry women in front of the Supreme Court say. And this week we've heard what the Supreme Court may be ready to say. But as ever for us as Christians, the most important question for us is, what does God say? That's the most important question for us to consider. Now, for our purposes, I believe that it's not an accident that this leak of the possible striking down of Roe v. Wade has all occurred in the week before Mother's Day, and it's all occurred before the midterms. And in one way... Hasn't it been amazing to see how quickly people have been able to remember and agree upon the simple definition of what a woman is again? 
that was a miraculous sort of event that took place this week. However, as Christians, we have never been confused about the definitions of men and never been confused about the definitions of women. For, once again, I will say that the simplicity of our Bibles helps us with the complexities of life. So on this Mother's Day, with this background, let's look to the Word of God, for indeed in it we find the necessary answers for life and for living. And as we begin, we're going to address some issues that are related to all that we've seen this week and even this day, Mother's Day. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 1, the portion of Scripture that was read for us this morning, Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, I will just say that this is a church that believes in the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Okay? This isn't myth. This is the Word of God. And we take it as such. All right, so this portion that was read for us by our brother this morning, Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26 and 28. Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves Upon the earth. Now look to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now, today we want to consider the following. Number one, the biblical definition of a woman. Number two, the fact that children are a gift from God. And thirdly, the blessing of motherhood. Okay? Number one, the biblical definition of a woman. Well, first we see from verse 26 that the female counterpart, this is Genesis 1:26, that the female counterpart to Adam was also made in the image of God. So the Bible clearly teaches us that both male and female were made in the image of God. While created in God's image, woman images God differently and bring God, brings God glory differently than man, but she's still created in the image of God. We, we see this explained by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, which reads, man is the image and glory of God but the woman is the glory of man. So image of God, created in the image of God, but not created like Adam, 
created from Adam. Adam created from the dust of the ground. Eve created from Adam. MacArthur comments, man is the image and the glory of God. Woman is also the image of God, but she is the glory of man. And the point is, God can make a magnificent creature out of the dust to reflect his glory. And he can also make a magnificent creature out of the side of man to be a helper to man and to radiate God's glory. So we begin with this simple truth that like the first man, woman was made in the image of God. Now, this stands whether or not she's married, whether or not she has children. Woman is an image bearer of God. Now, she has all the same characteristics, self-consciousness, cognition, personality, relationship, spirituality, emotion, and creativity. All that the image of God gives to a man, he also gives to a woman. And the only difference is, as again, MacArthur states that God made Adam out of the dirt and God made Eve out of Adam. Therefore, the first biblical definition of a woman is this. The Bible makes clear that women bear equally the image of God. Secondly, we note in verse 27 of Genesis 1 that God made them male and female. An image bearer, but then we see distinction in that God makes male and female. Now, it's in Genesis 2.22 where we first see the use of the word woman. So, just look there again, Genesis 2.22. <clears throat> and we note that it's, it's uh, God himself who uses the term first. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man And Adam said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, what? Woman. She should be called woman. So here's the first use of the word woman. Now look at verse, again, 23. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In your Bible, is it indented? Does it look a little different than the text before it? Some have said that this is... um, Actually, Adam just being exuberant about the gift of Eve to him, and he's exuberant, and it's either a poem or a love song. You know, guys do crazy things when they first fall in love, right? It's a pity we don't keep it up afterwards. <laughs> and this is, this is the idea here from Adam. It's either a, it's a, it's a poem. Wow, this is... This is, that's for me? Wow. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I know she's going to be called woman. For she was taken out of man. So it's either the first love poem or it's the first love song. You haven't heard that on the radio, have you? And it's in this where Adam is just responding exuberantly He gives the name woman. And his expression here is an idiom in in, uh, Hebrew. Idiom is a figurative meaning, which Adam intends to mean that God's gift to him 
was his exact counterpart. It's his perfect match. The idiom is the figure of speech. That's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a perfect match, perfect counterpart. One translation reads, Adam is saying that she is the completer of me and she's from me. She completes me and she's from me. The Hebraic word usage here then in verse 22 is that God fashioned or another translation, God built the woman out of the man. So what we see is that God takes the material from Adam's newly formed body and opened his side and used some bone and tissue, bone and flesh, and fashioned and built the woman. Interestingly, the Hebrew word used here for fashion and to build is the same word as to describe a builder who builds something of grace and beauty. God builds something of grace and beauty into the woman. And she's the perfect counterpart to the man. She is indeed defined as Adam's helper. So we see that in God's original design, assigned roles were given to both Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.18, we read, I will make a helper fit for him. In Genesis 1.28, we see that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. So the scriptures tell us that God created woman as the definition. She is a thing of grace and beauty. She has been fashioned by God. She is the perfect helper fit for the man. And the idea again in the Hebrew is that she is created to be a help to Adam where Adam was deficient. She was created to be his perfect complement. And to help him in his God-assigned task, of course, including the task of bearing children. Now, let us hasten to add, there is nothing demeaning in her being called Adam's helper. Nothing demeaning by that. We're not talking about hamburger helper. Okay? There's a completely different perspective. In fact, we see that God himself assumes the role of helper very often throughout the Old Testament. It's not demeaning. We see that, for example, in Psalm 40 and verse 17. We also see that after her creation, Adam names her. We see that here in Genesis 2. Adam names her. She shall be called woman. Now, naming Eve is a sign of God's divine order in their relationship, seen in the fact that God gave Adam headship and that Adam is the one who names Eve. It's a sign of authority. It's a sign of headship. Now, what does Adam call her? Well, the Hebrew word for man is ish, I-S-H. And Adam, appropriately enough, names the woman Isha. Isha. And interestingly enough, the word Isha in Hebrew comes from the root word for soft. So she was taken out of the man, and Adam's first description of her 
is that she's beautiful, she's graceful, and she's delicate. She's soft. If we look ahead to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, we see that Adam then gives his wife two different names. So look ahead to Genesis 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she's the mother of all living. So he first names her woman. She shall be called Isha because she's taken out of me. And then in Genesis 3.20, he names her Eve. Two different names. Wilson is helpful when he states the first was Isha or woman because she was taken out of the man. The second in the Hebrew is Shava, which means life bearer. Or as it's said in the English, Eve. In both passages where she is named, it is clearly stated that her two names reveal truth about her. Wilson continues, the first reveals her dependence upon the man. She was taken out of the man. The second reveals man's dependence upon her. He comes from her. Millennia later, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we are continually to remember these two truths in our marriage. Each wife is a Isha, and each wife is a Shiva. Each is a woman, and each is an Eve. Now, let me say this this morning, okay? The Bible is not confused over the definition of what a woman is. The Bible is not confused. Culture can be confused. The culture is confused. But the Word of God's not confused, okay? And as Christians, we don't need to be confused. We don't need to be confused. God isn't confused because it's God himself who defines the terms. Okay? Indeed, a woman was made for the man. She was made in God's image. She was made for a different purpose than the man. Thus, given the Bible's definitions in the garden, we see God's perfect original design. In the beginning, we see that God made one man, one woman, designed them to marry designed them to leave parents, designed them to cleave together, designed them to have children, and in all of that design, designed them to enjoy the pleasure of his design and thus give him glory. That's the whole picture. And he puts them in a beautiful place in which to do this. And they were to do this in a lifelong bond sealed by covenant which would indeed evidence the fact that they were one flesh for life. As Christians, we cannot support any other design than the one which God has first established because what we see in the Garden of Eden is God's perfect design, and it is this design which is the basis, by the way, of all other human relationships. And while the fall and the entrance of sin has marred the picture, this pattern has never changed. This means that God's design for the roles of men and women and the goal of family remains the same. It is a transcultural design. Anytime you see in the New Testament when Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
when Paul goes all the way, he leapfrogs over everything in history, and then he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Anytime you see Paul do that, Paul's not confused. It's not because Paul hasn't been on social media and he doesn't know what he's supposed to think and he's not told what to say. Paul goes all the way back to creation because he's saying this is a transcultural mandate. This thing transcends culture. It never changes. This is the design. This is God's design. And it's a perfect design. And it's the original design. And so we as Christians don't support, we can't support any other design. We can't support a guy and a woman living together. We don't support that. You can pretend you, you can pretend all you want, but we don't support that. You can waltz around your little house and say, we don't need a piece of paper to tell us that we love each other. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's fine. You might not need the piece of paper to tell you that you love each other, but there will be days when you need that piece of paper to remind you that you love each other. This is why we make promises to each other. And it's exactly why you don't want to make a promise. Because you don't want to hang around when it gets hard. And it will get hard. It will be difficult. See, that's not God's design. That's not God's design. Sin mars it, it changes it, but the pattern doesn't change. So this means for us simply that God's design for the roles of men and women and the goal for the family is just the same. Listen, Christian, take a breath. You don't have to look to the culture to find out how you should be in your house. Take a breath. You don't have to look to the world. Just look to the word. We're not making all this up. <laughs> it's already been given to us. And these things are good things. Marriage is a good thing. It's God's design. Children are a good thing. It's God's design. Therefore, listen to me, single young people. In the right time, marriage to another Christian, it's a good thing. It's not something to be actively avoided. It's something that should be actively pursued. And you should be thankful if God brings it to you. Christian parents... Children are a blessing from God. And starting and growing a family should be pursued by most Christian parents. And if God brings it, be thankful. It's not something to be avoided, something to be prayed through, taught through. But be thankful. These are good things. Marriage is a good thing. And children are good things. Takes us to our second point. Children are a gift. In Genesis 1.28, we read that God says to Adam and Eve that they should be fruitful and multiply. In creation, we see that God blessed them with the opportunity of procreation, thus propagating the human race. Such a blessing of God and the propagation of the family unit evidences that children themselves are a blessing. In giving this command to Adam and Eve, we see that God was and is pleased to bless couples with children, for it is through this command that the earth was to be populated and replenished. The Bible makes clear then that at some point, most wives, and by extension husbands, 
need to be willing, notice what I say most, you can talk to me later about the caveats, most wives and by extension husbands need to be willing to seek God in the matter of becoming a mother. Motherhood is not the only part of their definition, of course, but it is an essential part. The point, here is, uh, the point here is that woman needs to be willing to follow the design for which, in this sense, she was created. There are too many Christian wives, and again, by extension, husbands, too many Christian wives today who look at children not as an inheritance but as a hindrance rather than as a gift from God. Married couples need to be sure that they are thinking biblically about children. Look to Psalm 127.3 and verse 3. 127, sorry, and verse 3. One twenty-seven, three. Behold, children are inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the, wo- the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Children are a heritage. So the Bible makes clear that children are derived from the Lord and therefore to be seen as a blessing from his hand. And children come only through God's will and blessing. So just as an inheritance does not come from the labor of the son, but rather comes as a gift of the father or the mother by the means of their blessing, so too, God is saying, our children. It's an, it's an inheritance. That's why the psalmist compares children to, to this, coming as a gift from God. Indeed, the Bible makes clear that children are a blessing to individual families, and they are also a blessing to society as a whole. One commentary states, the prosperity alike of states and individuals depends on nothing so much as on the abundant progeny of children. But children are manifestly the free gift of God. Individual families depend upon the, uh, uh, the population of children. Cultures, states depend upon the population of children. Children add to the prosperity of the culture in that they contribute, they work. They pay taxes, etc. The less children a culture has, the less blessed the culture is. Can't kill your children and expect that they're going to be able to contribute to the future of the seniors in the country. Children benefit individuals, benefit cultures. There's another reason why the Bible says that children are a blessing. In Malachi 2.15, we read this, but... Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Now hear this. It's God speaking. He, he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Okay? He seeks godly offspring. Why did he make them one? He seeks godly offspring. In this passage, it again speaks to the importance of marriage. Keeps, it speaks to the importance of keeping away from divorce. Malachi goes all the way back to creation. And what does he do? He points to the fact that God put Adam and Eve together for one of the main purposes of procreation. Not the only purpose, but one of the main purposes of procreation. Now, so think of this. God could have made 
a number of women for Adam. It could have been even a dozen other women. But it wasn't. There's, there's a whole theology there, by the way. You, you, you dissatisfied with your spouse? God gave you that spouse. Did you, did you hear me? God didn't say to, to Adam, uh, Adam, here's uh, one and it goes through 25. Pick one or take them all. He made the perfect counterpart to Adam. You start thinking about your marriage, that your spouse is your perfect counterpart and not your enemy, your marriage will change. Your marriage will change. Not a dozen women, just one. Why? Because Malachi says it was so God himself might be given godly offspring. One translation says a noble and excellent seed. That God might be given a noble and an excellent seed. Adam was given only one woman to be his wife because legitimate offspring could come only through true and lawful marriage. So the gift of children and marriage are seen together. Marriage is a blessing of God and children are a blessing. Why? Because God says that he is seeking godly offspring. Christian parents then should not treat lightly the responsibility to seek God regarding having children. Considering both marriage and children from this passage in Malachi, Gil is helpful when he warns, therefore, take heed to your own spirit. Take heed to your affections that they do not go after other women and and be led thereby to take them in marriage and to despise and divorce the lawful wife as it follows. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth by marrying another or divorcing her. Seeing then both children and by necessary extension, marriage as blessing from God's hand is a biblical perspective. Saints, some of you should be careful regarding the way that you're thinking about your marriage this morning. Some of you should be careful about the way that you're thinking about having children. Do not quickly dismiss your God-given responsibilities in this area. You took an oath before God and witnesses. And you took an oath to do something when you were together as man and wife. God has put you together expressly for you to do. The Bible's clear that both marriage and children are gifts and blessings from God's hand. And God is displeased with us when we are displeased with his blessing. That takes us to our third and final point, and that is to speak to the blessing of motherhood. We note that Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Think about this now as I read it. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. What's Paul saying here? It's a warning. It's a warning to Christians. It's a warning for us not to think like the world. 
It's a warning for us not to take the counsel of the world. Because he says the thinking and the counsel of the world are futile. So given our context today, Paul's warning is that we have to be careful not to think like the world when it comes to understanding the definitions of men, when it comes to understanding the definitions of a woman. We're not confused. You don't need to be confused. I feel sorry for those who are confused. We want to think like the word of God and not like the world about our marriages. And under this third point, about the blessing of children. So the thinking of the world is futile when it comes to thinking about children. How do I know that? Well, consider the following two quotes just as a sampling. The first is from Margaret Sanger. You ever heard of her? The founder of the American Birth Control League and later the president of Planned Parenthood. And the second is from a former female NBC correspondent and I think at times still current PBS reporter Betty Rowland. The first for Margaret Sanger, no woman can call herself free until she can choose consciously whether she will or will not be a mother. And then Betty Rowland, biological possibility and desire are not the same as biological need. Women have childbearing equipment. For them to choose not to use the equipment is no more blocking what is instinctive than it is for a man who, muscles or no, chooses not to be a, weight, a weightlifter. Hmm. Now, at first, these statements might not startle your sensibilities. And that could be more because we're paying attention to the culture around us. And the culture around us seems to be taking a very dim view of motherhood. And that's seeping perhaps even to on, uh, into our own thoughts as Christians. Being a wife and a mother is not considered to be a high or lofty vocation today, is it? But rather something that is forced upon you just because you're a woman. No choice in the matter. Motherhood is seen more like a trap than a privilege of design. And if you think I'm overstating the case, consider the fact that in our nation, we have seen more than 63 million abortions since 1973. Let that number sink in. 63 million. It's a staggering number. Made worse by the fact that according to one source, most women who obtained abortions were in their 20s, that's 60%. About a third were in their 30s. And more than half of abortions in 2014, that's 59%, were obtained by women who had le at least had a, one child, according to Gutmaker. And while we hear that abortion must be kept safe and legal because of incest and rape, the sad reality is that 1% of abortions were due to rape and less than half of 1% were due to incest. Those two statistics have held steady in the abortion debate for years. 1% and less than half than 1%. But it has to be all over the land. And sadly, according to one source, the top reason for having an abortion was because, quote, having a baby would dramatically change my life, end quote. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of that top, top number. In other words, I don't know who's married, who wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. But yet with all, I can still say 
that we've certainly gotten away from the idea that children are a gift of God and that motherhood is a blessing. What sad numbers these are precisely because they represent our cultural attitude towards children and towards motherhood. In his most excellent article on abortion, Jesse Johnson wrote this week, in the Old Testament, the Israelites found themselves surrounded by nations that offered their children as religious sacrifice. Moloch worship appears to have been commonplace among the Canaanites. And according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, it became a prominent feature of Israelite culture. Who was Moloch? According to the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, Moloch was a Canaanite god who was worshipped primarily by parents burning their children as a sacrifice. Customs appeared to have been varied. Sometimes it was the oldest son. Sometimes the ashes were built into the family house, as in they were put into a jar and placed literally in the cornerstone of the house. And the general idea appears to be that the act of sending the child to the realm of the dead prepared the, re- the way for the rest of the family to be received by Moloch in the afterlife. In other words... Children were sacrificed for the well-being of their parents. God took the sin of child sacrifice so seriously that he warned that anyone who offered their children to Moloch deserved themselves to die. The wicked practice which was also performed in Israel, that's the danger, (laughs) was finally ended by King Josiah who according to 2 Kings 23.10, stopped the practice of, quote, burning their sons and daughters as an offering to Moloch. There really is nothing new under the sun. But sacrificing our children is clearly not a biblical perspective. Sacrificing our children, maybe not to the God of Moloch, but to the God of our own pleasures, remains. And saints, God has so much better than that. In fact, the Bible makes clear that motherhood is a high and a noble calling. And the word calling comes from the Latin word vocare, which is a verb and literally means to call. Before the 16th century, its usage was understood to mean the call by God to an individual for service, which was be rendered unto him. And this is seen particularly in the Latin Vulgate, which had a specific usage that meant the call to priesthood. That's still the usual understanding yet in Roman Catholicism. But the great reformers, Martin, Luther, John Calvin, however, and others, brought a much broader and better understanding of the word vocare. They understood vocation as a divine calling, not just to the ministry of the priesthood, but also potentially including most every, quote, secular occupation. Based on texts like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. That's your calling. That's your vocare. Ephesians 2, 10, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God hath prepared in advance for you to do. The reformers saw whatever a person's life work was as their vocation. That's their calling from God. And therefore, that person should do his work as under the Lord. And so we might rightly define vocation as a call, a summons, a citation, the calling of the will of God. And all of these may be used, and I contend all of these should be used as we think of God calling a woman to marriage and motherhood. That's a calling. 
motherhood then is a high and a noble calling. One Christian woman writes, Few women realize what great service they're doing for mankind and for the kingdom of Christ when they provide a shelter for the family and good mothering, the foundation of which all else is built. A mother builds something far more significant and magnificent than any cathedral. The dwelling place for an immortal soul, both her child's fleshly tabernacle and his earthly abode. No professional pursuit so uniquely combines the most menial tasks with the most meaningful opportunities. That's the call. Only a woman can be a mother and only a Christian woman can be a godly mother. And from the very beginning, the Bible makes it clear that such motherhood is a gift of God. It is a part of his design. It is the vocation given for the Christian woman to fulfill to the glory of God. That's a calling. Other things can be done, but that's the goal. So can a mother work outside of the home and still be a good mother? Absolutely. We only need to look at the Proverbs 31 woman. But I will remind you again, the Proverbs 31 woman's focus was always on her home first. And the work in which she was involved was to be a benefit to her husband and to her home, not to advance her own career. She understood that her vocation, her calling was her home. And so my caution on this Mother's Day for each one of us is to be sure that as Christians, we're not buying into the cultural shift on the importance of motherhood and children. We only need to take a look around at the culture today to see that more and more we try to change God's original de design, the more confusing motherhood will become. And the more trapped women will feel when this world tells them that motherhood is robbing them of their opportunity to be a truly fulfilled woman. The truth is that a natural part of a woman is being a mother, if that's in the providence of God. One doesn't diminish the other. Rather, one enhances the other. As one Christian female author writes, women have been liberated right out of the genuine freedom they enjoyed for centuries to oversee the home, rear the children, and pursue personal creativity. They've been brainwashed to believe that the absence of a titled payroll occupation enslaves a woman to failure, to boredom, and to imprisonment within the confines of their houses. Though feminism speaks of liberation, self-fulfillment, personal rights, and breaking down barriers, these phrases inevitably mean the opposite. The mundane accompanies every task. However high-paying or prestigious the job, there will be the mundane. So that escape from boredom is not inevitable just because your workplace is not at home. And where there's time for personal creativity, when you are, where is the time for personal creativity when you are in essence working two jobs, one at home and one away? Indeed, the blessing of motherhood, brethren, is a high and a noble call because her vocation can shape so much. You've heard the saying, the hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. Well, it's true. As history shows us, it's true. And we need to be sure that we're thinking of motherhood as a God-given calling and as a blessing to those such called. Now, by way of application, as we think through these truths, it's said that Napoleon was once asked, what could be done to restore the prestige of the nation of France? You know what his reply was? 
give us better mothers. And so I want to encourage us, each one of us in the way that we're thinking about the role of mother. I've repeated many times this morning that it's a high and a noble vocation. A woman is both wife and mother can offer her service as a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Lord. This mindset will help on those days when the call of motherhood doesn't seem either high nor lofty. And there are those days, aren't there? Again, another woman writes, despite the pressures and difficulties, the job can be overwhelmingly satisfying and amazingly productive because the result of really competent mothering will be passed from generation to generation. Products in the marketplace may come and go, but generation after generation, we produce our sons and daughters. Susanna Wesley, the incomparably brilliant and well-educated mother of sons who shook two continents for Christ, wrote this, I'm content to fill a little space if God can be glorified therein. That little space that Susanna Wesley was to be content in, that little space she filled, raised godly children, two of whom became powerful preachers of the gospel. There's no greater contribution that a Christian mother can give than raising godly children. May God give each of our mothers the joy of being content in that vocation. A vocation that God has blessed you with, knowing that you will indeed hear your children rise up and call you blessed because you've accepted the task of motherhood. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the fact that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. How we thank you for the fact that we don't have to be confused about so much that the world is confused about. And Father, I pray that you would bless each in this sanctuary. You would sink these truths deep in our hearts. And you would help us to rejoice in the design that you've given, seen all the way in creation, that we might give you glory. And we'll pray it to the glory and to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.